due to some human error on my part, an ad in last week's show didn't go out to the whole audience. So today, some of you will be getting a special encore edition, while others will be hearing it for the first time, which is exciting. Uh, keep an ear out for when I describe a new podcast called Uneffing the Republic, though they don't say effing. Maybe you'll be hearing it again, or maybe for the first time. And now, Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about the origins of race and the building of a caste system in the U.S., based largely on the lessons from Isabel Wilkerson, author of Caste, The Origins of Our Discontent. One of the first questions I asked was, where did this idea of being a white person come from in the first place. Science is clear. We are one human race. We're all related, all descended from a common ancestor in Africa. Some people walked out of Africa into colder, darker places and lost a lot of their melanin, some of us more than others. But genetically, we are all 99.9% the same. There's more genetic diversity within what we call racial groups than there is between racial groups. There is no gene for whiteness or blackness or Asianness or what have you. So how did this happen? How did we get this thing? How did racism start? I think if you had asked me to speculate on that in my ignorance some years ago, I probably would have said, well, I guess somewhere back in deep history, people encountered one another and they found each other strange. Your skin is a different color, your hair is different, you dress funny. I guess I'll just go ahead and jump to the conclusion that since you're different, that you're somehow less than me, and maybe that makes it okay for me to mistreat you. Right? Is that something like what we imagine or assume? And under that kind of scenario, it's sort of, it's all a big tragic misunderstanding. But it seems that's wrong. First of all, race is a recent invention. It's just a few hundred years old. Before that, yes, people divided themselves by religion, tribal group, language, things like that. But for most of human history, people had no notion of race. In ancient Greece, for example, and I learned this from the historian Nell Irvin Painter, the Greeks thought they were better than the other people they knew about, but not because of some idea that they were innately superior. They just thought they'd developed the, the most advanced culture. So they looked around at you know, the Ethiopians, but also the Persians and the Celts, and they said, they're all kind of barbaric compared to us, culturally. They're just not Greek, right? And yes, in the ancient world, there was lots of slavery, but people enslaved people who didn't look like them, and they often enslaved people who did. Did you know that the English word slave is derived from the word Slav? Because Slavic people were enslaved by all kinds of folks, including Western Europeans, for centuries, right? Slavery wasn't about race either because no one had thought up race yet. So who did? I put that question to another leading 
uh, historian, Ibram Kendi, I didn't expect he would answer the question in the form of one person's name and a date, as if we were talking about the light bulb, but he did. He said, in, in his exhaustive research, he found what he believed to be the first articulation of racist ideas. And he named the culprit. This guy should be more famous or infamous. His name is Gomez de Zorara. Portuguese man, wrote a book in the 1450s, in which he did something that no one had ever done before, according to Dr. Kendi. He lumped together all of the people of Africa, vast, diverse continent, and he described them as a distinct group, inferior and beastly. Never mind that in that pre-colonial time, some of the most sophisticated cultures in the world were in Africa. Why would this guy make this claim? Turns out it helps to follow the money. First of all, Zarara was hired to write that book by the Portuguese king. And just a few years before, Slave traders, here we go, slave traders tied to the Portuguese crown had effectively pioneered the Atlantic slave trade. They were the first Europeans to sail directly to sub-Saharan Africa to kidnap and enslave African people. So it was suddenly really helpful to have a story about the inferiority of African people to justify this new trade to other people, to the church, to themselves. And with the stroke of a pen, Zarara invented both blackness and whiteness because he basically created the notion of blackness through this description of Africans. And as Dr. Kendi says, blackness has no meaning without whiteness. Other European countries followed the Portuguese lead in looking to Africa for human property and free labor, and in adopting this fiction about the inferiority of African people. I found this clarifying. Racism didn't start with a misunderstanding, it started with a lie. In the colony of Virginia, in 1640, an African indentured servant by the name of John Punch runs away from his servitude. John has figured out that this wasn't what he imagined it to be. Interestingly, John doesn't run away alone. He runs away with a Dutchman and a Scotsman. They are all indentured servants. They are all living in identical circumstance. So they band together and run away. This does not go well. Now they don't make it. The three men are chased down and caught. And a very interesting thing is recorded in the colony of Virginia. The Dutchmen and Scotsmen are given four additional years of servitude as punishment. One to the master to whom they're indentured and three to the colony. But the African is given what we see codified for the first time as perpetual servitude. The judge tells John Punch that unlike the two men from Europe, he will labor for his master for the rest of his days. What have we written down? Slavery. Slavery. 
Some Africans were already effectively enslaved in Virginia by 1640, but the Punch case seems to be the first explicit approval of lifelong servitude and the first time African and European people were treated differently in the law. Why was it done? This is important. Suzanne says whether the judge consciously intended this or not, his decision was a gift to rich landowners. The story of race, folks, is the story of labor. They needed a consistent, reliable labor force. And they could not have a consistent, reliable labor force if that labor force was banding together and challenging the authority of the colony. Colonial America was deeply unequal. Most people of every color were poor laborers, farm workers, builders, seamstresses. And those workers were prone to getting restless and pulling out the pitchforks. There were lots of worker uprisings. The disparate sentencing of John Punch was one of the first examples, Plissick says, of what would become an ongoing practice by the rich landowning class and their political representatives. The practice of giving the poor people who looked like those in power, people of European descent, advantages, usually small advantages, over Africans and Native people. And what did that do? It switched their allegiance from the people in their same circumstance to the people at the top. It eventually created a multi-class coalition of people who would later come to be called white. It created a multi-class coalition. So this was a divide and conquer strategy. It was completely brilliant. So Elizabeth Key was the daughter of uh, a white uh, legislator in Virginia and an unnamed uh, African woman, so she was biracial. Historian Ibram Kendi of the University of Florida, author of Stamped from the Beginning, The Definitive History of Racist Ideas in the United States. Elizabeth Key was born in 1630. Her mother, an African, was effectively enslaved. Her father was not only a free white man, but a member of the Virginia Legislative Assembly, the House of Burgesses. Before his death, her father, her white father, uh, basically uh, asked her slave owner to free her when she became 15. Uh, he did not do that. Eventually, she uh, wed an indentured servant who also happened to have some law training in England. Uh, they sued for her freedom on the basis that her father was free and also because by then in, in the 16, mid-1600s, uh, she had uh, become Christian. And in English common law, you cannot, the, the paternity or the status of a child derived from the father. And it was also against English common law to enslave a Christian. So Elizabeth Key sued on the grounds that she was her English father's daughter and that she was a Christian. The colonial court ruled in her favor in 1655, and she was freed. Clearly, this frustrated the ruling elite. So by the 1660s, Virginia had changed their laws to basically state that the status of a child was derived from the mother. That is, the child of a Negro woman would be free if the mother was free, and a slave if the mother was a slave. And that a Christian slave basically would not have to become free. So that closed a that closed a loophole. Precisely. 
Some slave owners had resisted exposing their African slaves to Christianity so long as English law required them to free Christians. The new law explicitly stated that slaveholders could offer the blessed sacrament of baptism without fear of having to free the enslaved people who partook of it. These legal changes, of course, expanded the pool of people who could be permanently enslaved. Christians of African descent and the children fathered by slave-owning men through the rape of the women they held as slaves. These laws enhanced the bottom line for slave owners, but that's not all that the white men in charge did to advantage themselves. Then they simultaneously passed laws stating that uh, white women could not have biracial, have relations with enslaved or even Native American men. So it then gave white men the ability to basically have intercourse with everyone, but then white women and, 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 and non-white men could not. By 1680, the Virginia House of Burgess is literally debating what is a white man? Why are we debating what is a white man? What are we giving away? Land and rights. We're basically deciding who is going to be the citizen of this new world. The Virginia House of Burgesses was the first legislative body in colonial America. In 1682, the Burgesses passed a law limiting citizenship to Europeans. It made all non-Europeans, Negroes, Moors, Mulattoes, and Indians, as the law put it, quote, slaves to all intents and purposes. Virginia was giving away land at the time, in 50-acre allotments, but only to Europeans. Nine years later, in 1691, the Burgesses passed another law. According to historian Terence McMullen, this law included the first documented use in the English-speaking colonies of the word white, as opposed to English, European, or Christian, to describe the people considered full citizens. That is, the people who got to remain citizens so long as they didn't marry outside of their so-called race. The law read, quote, Whatsoever English or other white man or woman, being free, shall intermarry with a Negro, mulatto, or Indian man or woman, bond or free, shall within three months after marriage be banished and removed from this dominion forever. So by 1691, we have a definition of white, and we have constructed race in what becomes the United States. It's important that we see this creation was for the upliftment of white people primarily to support the white people at the top. Poor and working class whites will get little. They will get just as much as is needed to ensure their allegiance. I've been introducing you to a new show over the past few weeks, and they have given me quite a task. It's not that I need to say anything untrue about the show to try to convince you to listen to it. It's just that the truth sounds like it couldn't possibly be true. The show is called 
unfucking the Republic. But if I left it at that, you might get the impression like it was a show hosted by a couple of angry punks who just want to rail against the machine and use gratuitous profanity for shock value. But that's not what the show is. If anything, it's closer to a dissertation given at a library full of leather-bound books and the faint whiff of pipe smoke in the air with a perfectly appropriate amount of profanity used for punctuation and emphasis. So here I am, working my ass off, trying to convince you that a show with a name like Unfucking the Republic is worth your time and not beneath your cultured tastes. And then they go and release an episode like they did last week. Now, usually they release perfectly reasonable-sounding episodes like The Prosperity Doctrine, Christ as Capitalist, Exposing the Sick Intertwining of Religion and Capitalism, or How Trump Threw Away His Shot, explaining that if Trump had had the good sense just to start a high-profile war, then he could have easily been emperor for life, or The Beatification of Ronald Reagan. I mean, doesn't that just sound classy? But no. Their latest episode is about Congress, and admittedly, that could get anyone going, so they just let loose with the title, Unfucking Congress and the Fucking Fuckers Who Fucked Us. <sighs> Usually, promoting good shows isn't this hard. You just say they're good and people believe you, but these guys, they're making me work for it. But I guess there's one upside to this pitch there's only one way for you to know if I'm telling the truth. And that's to listen for yourself. You can find them by searching UNFTR. They are good friends of ours going back far beyond this new production of theirs. So check them out wherever you get your podcasts or by clicking the link in our show notes. Nineteen hundred, Franz Boas had moved up to becoming a professor of anthropology at Columbia University, the first anthropology department ever in the U.S. And at this point, he was one of the only people openly opposing the popular ideas of racial science. So Boaz's ideas are seen as fringe, as radical, as flying in the face of common sense. Because again, at the time, every museum, every textbook, government policy, they're all pushing in exactly the opposite direction. You teach new generations, particularly of white Americans, that people who happen not to look like them are naturally inferior. You're creating the very reality that you believe you're simply describing. And Boaz understood that very early on. Despite his radical ideas, Congress asked Boaz to be a part of a study that looked at the impact of recent immigrants to the U.S., specifically those from Eastern and Southern Europe. They wanted to know whether or not these people who came from different cultures would negatively affect the country, whether their supposedly lesser genes would contaminate the population. And the studies had to be conducted using empirical evidence. And back then, measuring head sizes was a popular scientific way of proving how ethnicities and races differed. So what was Boaz's main finding? It's essentially this. that it is impossible to sort people into ethnic or racial categories, that there's no set of measurements that every member of a racial or ethnic category um, seems to have. 
And we kind of take that as a given now in an age when we're schooled to say that race is um, a cultural construct. It's a cultural, social, historical construct. It's not a biological reality. But of course, at the time, the weight of scientific opinion, in fact, the entirety of scientific opinion said that race is deeply biological. It's inheritable. You know, you inherit a race. And Boaz says that, you know, wait a minute, if you cannot detect a thing called racial essence or ethnic essence based on physical measurements, and if you can't do that, then how can you possibly attribute anything else to it? Boaz pulled at that thread, and the truth revealed itself, that trying to measure physical features like head shape, jaw size, and foreheads in order to categorize people into certain groups was completely absurd. And his research, all the data, proved it. But after Boaz came to this conclusion and sent in his report, very few people took notice. And in fact, just a little over a decade later, the United States adopts a whole set of extremely restrictive new immigration laws that run directly counter to everything that Boaz was saying. And this, in a way, is the horror of these types of racially motivated policies. Because, you know, the policies themselves come out of a particular vision of common sense or nature now buttressed by science in that era. But they also create the realities that then the scientists look at and say, well, that must must simply be nature. Boaz knew it wasn't nature. It was man-made, an illusion, a construct, something designed to reinforce the existing power structures between people. He understood the idea that when you're gazing at anything in the world, you're not gazing at a reality free of history. You know, every reality we encounter trails a history along behind it. And the really scientific thing to do is begin to understand everything within its historical context. That the people you think of as primitive or backward haven't been stuck in the Stone Age forever. They too have histories. In fact, you know, when American tourists go around the world and say things like, I love to travel to London because it just has so much history. Well, of course, every place in the world has precisely the same amount of history. And Boaz understood that, that nobody is stuck outside of historical time. But he also understood that his own society had a history. His own society had a thing called a culture. You know, it had its own blinders, its own totems, its own gods that it worshipped without question, the theory of race, for example. And to live intelligently in the world meant to question all of those things. But to use the powers of real science, you know, to use the powers of scientific observation, open-eyed, self-critical, to try to unpack your own prejudices, not just to aim that scientific talent at describing the savagery of people who weren't like you. Oh, and by the way, if you believed that white, northern European, North American dominant culture was always rational, I always would say, are you kidding me? 
know, you, you can't look in an open-eyed way at the insanity of racial theory and believe that that has been the product of rational observation. And it was that breaking down of the belief in one's own specialness that was kind of the salutary contribution of Boaz. Essentially, race is was the metric that was used to determine one's place in what I described as the overarching infrastructure of division, the overarching artificial hierarchy of graded ranking of human value in a society um, you know, that determines standing and respect, benefit of the doubt, assumptions of competence or assumptions of lack of competence, access to resources, all of those things that, that occur in an artificial hierarchy in which those who are deemed dominant have the greatest access to all of the things that I've just described. And that there's this, there's this graded ranking until you get down to the bottom, uh, the bottom cast or the, the group that's deemed subordinate. It became a bipolar hierarchy in which the uh, early colonists were established themselves, <laughs> the British colonists established themselves at the top, and then uh, brought in uh, people of African descent to be at the very bottom as enslaved people. And then it became a bipolar structure in which anyone entering that, that bipolar hierarchy had to then navigate and figure out where they fit in, or more commonly, they were assigned to uh, a position in either of those uh, strata, or had to find what I call a middle caste in which to, in which to operate. Um, race, of course, is a creation. I mean, we often talk about race as a social construct. That's a term that is used all, all the time. We hear it a lot. But we often don't unpack what that really means. How did it become a social construct? And, um, you know, this, it's interesting when you look into these phenomena, you realize that race is relatively new in you know, in human history, in the long arc of human history. Race, as we have come to know it, um, is something that became, uh, relevant only when there were different kinds of people from all, from different parts of the world convening in, uh, you know, in this one place in the new world right. and having to, and, and being categorized upon arrival or categorized even before arrival, um, because they were, they fit into whatever the bipolar structure had been created or they were made to fit into the bipolar structure that was created. Right. And that came as a result, of course, of the transatlantic sl- slave trade, which was preceded. The, the thing is that before the transatlantic slave trade, there was really no need to identify anyone by the race, by the, on the basis of what we now call race. People were, uh, they were Hungarian or they were Irish or they were Polish or they were, uh, they were Endebelli or they were, uh, Yoruba or whatever they were back where they were from. Only upon arriving in a place where there are multiple groups of, uh, coming, arriving and also being needed or assigned to roles in order to sustain the economy of a, of a, of a new frontier of a new country being born. Only then did it become relevant, 
uh, what their categorization would be. And so if people were coming in from, say, Hungary or from Poland or Ireland, they did not arrive in initially thinking of themselves as white. They would not have needed to. They, they had their ethnicity. They had their, their, their nationality, but they did not have to think of themselves in terms of race. Only upon entering a, the new world, a new world in which people were being categorized without even want, necessarily wanting to, did the, the words and the, the words that undergird race become relevant. There's two great points that you make in the book. One is about the fact that in the beginning, the category, the salient thing are, are essentially Christian and heathen, right? Yes. That, that, that the idea is that, well, you can enslave heathens and, and maybe there's some, you know, there's some, there's some biblical uh, citations we can point to for that. But then you have um, African uh, enslaved people starting to convert to Christianity. <laughs> it's like, oh, shoot. Okay. And then they essentially have to erect a new category because the point here I think that's important to hammer home is that, you know, categories of in-group, out-group, of, of, of you know, uh, kinfolk stranger or countryman foreigner or co-religionist and, uh, you know, heathen, like all, there are all sorts of categories of in and out that are, you know, create oppression, persecution, uh, social hierarchy, the specific category that we think of now as this like category everywhere of race just gets built essentially out of nothing as a, as a kind of exigency of the actual creation of the institution of slavery. Absolutely. It becomes the tool for enforcing the hierarchy that was seen as necessary to create the, the country. The other great line that you have when you talk about race is, um, I think it's a Nigerian playwright who says to you, uh, after a talk you give, that, you know, in Africa there are no black people, which sort of gives you pause. Explain that. The idea being that you know, that there are no black people in Africa and that the way that that lands to, um, to the American ear is one of, well, of course, the, what does, what are you saying? Of course, there are black people in Africa. There's an entire subcontinent of people who are black in Africa. What, what does this mean? And it's, it's, it's something that doesn't land well on the ear because you're thinking, what are you talking about? And yet when you sit and think about it, you realize that, they don't have a need to think of themselves as black per se until they leave and come to some place where they are then categorized without necessarily wanting to, without thinking of themselves in that way. You know, where they are from and where they are from surrounded by other people who look more or less like them, they think of themselves in terms of ethnicity and the subgroups that may exist in a given country. They don't have to think of themselves as black, which is a reminder that, that, that this is the way that humans have always thought of themselves. What we view as, uh, as established almost natural law, as if we've been, as if we've absorbed this as natural law is in fact, a creation of man. It actually is not real. It is, is an artificial hierarchy that was used in this particular hierarchy, this particular caste system. In other caste systems, there might be, there, there might be uh, religion that's used as a metric. There could be uh, geography that's used as, as a metric, uh, lineage, other forms of lineage. But in this case, it was race as the tool, race as the signal, race as the cue as to where you fit in the caste system that was created with the founding of the country. What made you think of using the word caste system to describe 
America as a whole. In that paragraph, you used it to describe the American South. Well, I found that the word racism, which is often applied to discussions of interactions among and between African Americans and other groups uh, in, in this country, I found that term to be insufficient to capture the rigid social hierarchy and the repression that they were born into and that, in fact, everyone in that regime had to live under. And so I turned to the word caste, which is a word that had been used by anthropologists and social scientists who went into study the Jim Crow era in the 1930s in particular, and they emerged from their ethnographies or they emerged from their time there with the term caste as the language to use to describe what they found when they went there. And so I came to that word as had they. That is the term that is more precise. It is more comprehensive. And it gets at the underlying infrastructure that often we cannot see, but that is there undergirding much of the inequality and injustices and disparities that we live with in this country. What do you think the difference is between using the word caste system or systemic racism? Well, it's the difference in some ways between what one would consider caste versus race to begin with. I think of caste as the bones and race as the skin. And that that allows us to see that race is a tool of the underlying structure that we live with, that race is merely the signal and cue to where one fits in the caste system. And the caste system uh, is actually an artificial hierarchy. It's a graded ranking of human value in a society that determines the standing and respect, the benefit of the doubt, and access to resources uh, assumptions of competence and even of beauty through no fault or action of one's own. You're just born to it. And so caste focuses in on the infrastructure of our divisions uh, and the rankings, whereas race is the metric that's used to determine one's place in that uh, or one's assignment in that caste system. So that while there's an interaction between the two of them, caste is the much older term. It's a term that's been around for you know, for, for thousands of years, predates the idea of race, which is a fairly new concept. It's only four or 500 years old, dating back to the transatlantic slave trade. And so race is the newer concept. And it was in some ways created to maintain, to delineate, categorize, and create the caste system that underlies our society. We know about the laws on the segregated South that kept black people separate from white people and defined what they could do. But during the, the Great Migration, when black people, many, like six million black people migrated north in the hope of better opportunity, what are some of the laws and regulations that they found in the north that prevented them from realizing the opportunities that they sought to have in the north? Oh, exactly. In fact, they left one hierarchy, rigid formal hierarchy known as Jim Crow, in which it was against the law for a black person and a white person to merely play checkers together, uh, and, and with all of the restrictions that attended that and also the enforcement that was often brutal. 
but then they migrated away from that and found and discovered that actually caste shadowed them wherever they went, and that the response to their arrival was, in fact, uh, the methods that became known as northern uh, people at the time called it James Crow, in which uh, there were restrictive covenants that meant that uh, that white uh, homeowners, even if they wanted to sell to to black uh, people, black uh, potential buyers, were prevented by the restrictions that were embedded in their in their uh, deeds, and also, of course, redlining, which meant that the government would not back mortgages in neighborhoods where there were where African Americans lived, which meant that it was exceedingly difficult for African Americans until the 1960s to merely get a mortgage to buy a home, which is, of course, one of the uh, most prominent um, and relied upon methods of building wealth in in America, which means that there had been uh, a continuing generations-long disparity in access to the most basic uh, American dream. And so that is what they discovered when they got to the North. And in fact, these apparatus of, of control and and delineation and segregation were created in the North as a result of the response to the Great Migration. Bookshop is the online bookstore you've been waiting for. They have a mission to financially support local independent bookstores. You order your books online, but some of the funds go to support brick-and-mortar stores to help keep them thriving. You can choose to support a specific local bookstore, maybe in your area, or your order will contribute to an earnings pool that will be evenly distributed amongst independent bookstores, even those that don't use Bookshop. Plus, by purchasing a book through our Best of the Left Bookshop affiliate links, we'll get a 10% commission on every sale, while independent bookstores will get a matching 10%. By design, Bookshop gives away over 75% of its profit margin to stores, publications, authors, and others who make up the thriving, inspirational culture around books. And to top it off, Bookshop is a benefit corporation, or certified B Corp, a corporation dedicated to the public good. And today, we are promoting, unsurprisingly, Cast by Isabel Wilkerson, who we've been hearing a lot from today. Our affiliate link to Cast is in our show notes, or you can just go to bestoftheleft.com slash cast. That's cast with an E. We're not putting on a play here. And that will take you right to it. Now, all that said, let's say that you're just not going to buy that book. It's not going to happen. It's not on the cards. I get it. All of us could write book lists that would stretch longer than our expected lifespans. That is why, in addition to Bookshop, we've also partnered with Blinkist. Blinkist breaks down as many of the key points of nonfiction books as they can fit into about a 15-minute read or listen. And I actually just used them the other day to refresh myself about cast. I had read the full book, but Blinkist brought some of those key points back to the front of my mind. So if that sounds more up your alley, you can also support us by trying their free trial by going to bestofleft.com slash Blinkist so they know we sent you. So that's bestofleft.com slash cast to buy the full book and support local bookshops or bestofleft.com slash Blinkist to access an ever-growing library of summarized nonfiction books. And you can find both of those links in today's show notes.
in light of what is out there in in the U.S. and on the left, I think it's important to be clear on, on what he's saying and actually to be clear on the importance of it. And he says that the white race was invented as a ruling class social control formation. It is ruling class driven. It doesn't just emerge from psychocultural factors or things like this. This is what he's contesting, right? In response to labor solidarity, labor solidarity, this is why the labor question is so crucial to all of this. And as we'll see later, his understanding of the proletarian nature of the European and African Americans who are laboring in that period. These are laborers, right? In the latter Civil War stages of Bacon's Rebellion, 1676 and 1677, and again, there were 10 laboring class and servile revolts in the period leading up to this. The question of how the ruling class was going to maintain social control was at the fore, right? So this is very important. And just to say, well, we're going to bring in people and enslave them, that wasn't going to work. Even though the Royal African Company gets set up in the 1670s, you just keep, ruling class just can't say, well, okay, we'll start bringing in black laborers and enslave them because there was turmoil at their door. They burned the capital. They kicked out the governor. They had to devise a means of social control, right? This is the this is this story of the invention of the white race. So what Allen then describes is how a system of racial privileges was deliberately instituted by the late 17th, early 18th century Anglo-American bourgeoisie in order to define and establish the white race and establish a system of racial oppression. And racial oppression is different, he argues, than national oppression. And the difference is in how social control is maintained, and which is the key group that the ruling class uses to maintain social control. Under racial uh, oppression, the key group is the laboring class, the laboring class of the oppressor group, right? The laboring people of the oppressor group, where a national oppression, a sector of the oppressed group is promoted, you know, to help maintain social control. So, and there's different things that happen with those different systems of control, one of which, and we'll see in a second, that Harrison and all the early Afro-Caribbeans comment on how vicious the white supremacy is here when they come here compared to what they knew down in the Caribbean, right? The third and crucial point that Allen makes in his work is that the consequence of this system of racial oppression and this invention of the white race was not only ruinous to the interest of African Americans and not simply the enslaved African Americans, but free African Americans who were victimized by this racial oppression, but it was also disastrous for European American workers. It is not in their interest. It wasn't in their interest. And he tries to document this and go through this. And this is qualitatively different than what you will see. And I've mentioned this several times. If you go online and go to Wikipedia and you read about white privilege and the first statement is all white people benefit from white privilege. Well, we know the ruling class benefits and stuff, but Alan's making a much more profound argument. Alan is saying something very different, and he tries to back it up with historical fact and documentation, which is what makes his analysis all the more forceful and powerful and more appealing, I think. So his argument is that the position vis-a-vis -vis the rich and powerful was not improved 
but weakened by the white privilege, white skin privilege system. One of the key points that Allen makes, and this is the one I told the story before, but when I first heard him speak back in 1969 at a precursor to this facility, going way back four generations earlier, uh, called um, Alternate U, he gave a talk and he made these points. And I can't stress how important I think this is for anyone who wants to be a political activist today, who wants to see serious social change. He makes the argument and backs it up that in the three periods of national crisis, the three big periods previously, characterized by general confrontations between capital and urban rural and laboring classes, and the three periods are Civil War reconstruction, populism, and the Great Depression, the key to the defeat of the forces of democracy, labor, and socialism was in each case achieved by ruling, a cla ruling class appeals to white supremacism, basically by fostering white skin privileges of laboring class European Americans. I don't think that can be stressed enough. This is the one that I first heard in 69, and it stayed with me, and it haunted me. We have this pretty new format for our bonus episodes. Only in the last month or so have we started bringing on Dion and Aaron, our two researchers, into the conversation. It creates a whole different dynamic. We've been having really interesting conversations. And today, instead of just telling you that, I want to give you a little bit more of a taste of it. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for listening and supporting the show as always. Hi, Jay. This is Joe from upstate New York. There's this phenomenon of the Republican political doctor <laughs> that they kind of wield their doctorness in a overtly political way, usually in service to white supremacy in some, in some respect. Now, if you have diabetes, obesity, hypertension, um, and diabetes and hypertension are clearly risk factors for problems from COVID, then African-Americans are going to have more of those receptors inherent in their having the diabetes, the hypertension, the obesity. This is borderline him saying black people are genetically predisposed to this disease because he's not saying why black people are more predisposed to having diabetes and hypertension. And it's poverty, not just some genetic component. Debalon's confirmation hearing for Secretary of the Interior was one of the most horrifying, racist, so blatant and really cruel. So this was Senator John Barrasso from Wyoming, Republican, obviously. He took an issue with a tweet that she put out from October in which she suggested that Republicans don't believe in science. He um, used his and two fellow GOP committee members' medical credentials to emphasize his point. He said, quote, Do you think that as medical doctors, we don't believe in science? The guy who invented the MRI machine also believed the young earth theory. Right. So he invented the MRI machine and thought the world was 6,000 years old. So does he believe in science or not? It proves how much they don't believe in science because they have a conclusion and every single fact be damned. It doesn't matter. It's not going to change their opinion. They don't care about what it's doing to the environment. They don't care about what it's doing to Native people. They're capitalists, not scientists. They're doctors of capitalism. 
Police officers' lives are used as a legislative prop. They get them funding, but if they actually cared about police lives, they would invest in things that actually make our community safe. But they don't because, again, they don't really care about police lives. But police think they have a position of power, so they fight to keep that power. Obviously, I'm talking about the issue that has shaken the country to its foundations, the vicious cancellation of Dr. Seuss. Isn't it just one school district isn't recommending that they use Dr. Seuss in a, in a child's reading program? The way I heard what you just said is one step away from a book burning. Oh. <laughs> if that's what okay. you meant, then yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's, yeah, you're right. That's what I meant. I think that all this cancel culture crap has turned out to be is just, it's like another word for when they find out something they've been told. I don't know. I don't want to say in this case, they've been told a lie, but they're angry every time something they love gets poked at. I remember we read Tom Sawyer in, I think it was elementary school, but didn't read Huck Finn until college. Could have a different, more interesting conversation about Huck Finn in college. And at least, at least 2,800 incidents have been of anti-Asian hate crimes have been reported by the AAPI Stop Hate Report between March and December of last year. So we are we are in a situation right now where talking about anti-Asian stereotypes and caricatures is really important. This is not Tucker. This is his guest. This is sort of his conclusion talking about liberals who see racist depictions in children's books as a problem. What these vandals, cultural vandals, are doing now are basically trying to make us live in a permanent year zero, as exactly. they called it in Cambodia, uh, where we have no cultural inheritance and we're just bobbing around in the flotsam and the jetsam of a hyper-present tense, which is no way to live. I uh, agree that we would be wrong to think that cultural inheritance is meaningless. And mm -hmm. that's the cartoonish idea that conservatives put forward as though the left doesn't care about history at all. Right. If they were willing to live in a world of nuance, then we could live in a shared world where we have an appreciation for history that is complicated and nuanced. So that really gives you a sense of what our conversation sounded like this week. Obviously, that is just for members. You can get that by signing up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support, or we give away financial hardship memberships because we want anyone who wants to be able to hear that extra stuff, but doesn't have the money for it to be able to hear it. So just send me an email to j at bestofleft.com, and I will get you all set up with that. So Willie James was uh, a teenager, high school student in Florida in the early 1940s. And he was the only child, the beloved only son of, of a black couple there in a, in a town there, uh, who was, uh, very excited, uh, at the uh, Christmas holiday because he'd gotten a job at a, uh, store general store in town, which was considered uh, quite the accomplishment in the Jim Crow South for him to, to get this job. And there, uh, he was so excited that uh, as Christmas approached, 
he uh, gave out uh, Christmas cards to all of his uh, co-workers. And in one of the Christmas cards, he uh, addressed it to uh, a girl there that he had a crush on. I believe her name was Cynthia. And he um, wrote in an extra note in the card saying that, you know, he, for her, that, that she uh, was someone that he could, would love to have as a, as a sweetheart. And he a- ended it with, with L uh, and then his name. And um, he, he sent that card to her. Uh, it would be viewed as a, a sweet gesture for most uh, young people, most teenagers who uh, have a crush on someone. But in the Jim Crow South, it was a, a dangerous thing that he had done. He was black and, and the girl that he had the crush on was white. Uh, the girl uh, showed the card to her father and the father gathered uh, a, a posse of men to go and to abduct the boy, uh, took the, f- the boy's father with him when they abducted, ad- abducted him and um, took him uh, to the banks of, of a river and forced him uh, to jump in front of his stricken father, who was also held at gunpoint and not able to help his only child. And that is that was the consequence of the breach of what of one of what I call the pillars of caste, which would be uh, it's called endogamy or the restrictions on intermarriage between groups or between castes. But it extends to romantic interest on any level uh, when it's t- taken to its strict interpretation. And he had inadvertently in a sweet and innocent way, breached one of the the uh, ironclad uh, pillars uh, of caste and, and paid for it with his life. And his father suffered unimaginable grief beyond just beyond imagining. When you tell the story in the book, you record um, the note that Willie James gave Cynthia after he heard his original note might have offended her. I'm going to read it because I want to talk about this part of the story. I'm not doing this just to put everybody through pain here. Um, But he writes to her on New Year's Day, 1944. I know you don't think much of our kind of people, but we don't hate you. All we want is to be your friends, but you won't let us. Please don't let anybody else see this. I hope I haven't made you mad. And at the end, he writes, I love your name. I love your voice. For a sweetheart, you are my choice. And for that, he's killed in front of his father. The thing I want to ask you about this is about the psychology of caste. When you tell this story, the girl's father and the two other white men who hogtie this child and force him to jump into a river in front of his own parent, they are monsters. I mean, monsters. And I'm sure they thought of themselves as good fathers, good Christians, pillars of the community. How does something like caste exert such psychological power? that it can turn men into savages in that way that they can respond to that note with murder, like a, with a, like murder, like performative murder. Like how, what to you is like the psychological underpinning of this? How is it so powerful when it's built on something so flimsy? Well, that's the reason why I mentioned the eight pillars, why I compiled the eight, because they're all necessary. And you can see that when you have eight pillars holding up an infrastructure, then you have, you know, you have reinforcement 
from every direction in a society. And when I mentioned, you know, I've often described our country as being like an old house and in that, you know, the, the pillars and the joists are not visible to all of us. I mean, we can't see the pillars and the joists and the beams and the houses that we might live in, um, but that we know that they're holding them, holding us up and they're more powerful because we cannot see them, but we rely upon them. And so in that way, passing down through the generations of a sense, speaking, you know, speaking of say, uh, what, what people believed as a result of the story of Noah, of a righteous obligation to maintain the hierarchy as one has inherited it through the generations. The sense of you are not upholding your responsibility if you do not maintain these boundaries and these rankings, that it's your duty as a member of the dominant caste who has who has a divine responsibility to live up to a particular ideal and if this is passed down through the generations and reinforced through le- through law and reinforced through every exposure to uh even illustrations about what people look like you know all of the caricatures and the minstrelsy that all were working to reinforce the inferiority, the perceived inferiority of one group and the perceived purity and superiority of another group. You know, at every turn in stories, uh, in children's nursery rhymes and stories, I mean, they, the, the, it was, these were reinforced at every turn. Commercials, the packaging on soap and on flour and on syrup, you know, w- which would have the, you know, Aunt Jemima depictions or the depictions of, of a tattered black child, a slave child, um, who was unkempt, unclean. And there's one ad that shows uh, a black child has to, you know, gets in the tub and is scrubbed down with this soap and then turns to be not black or not what they're looking, not what they were before. The, the ways that this imagery serves to un- to underlie, to reinforce the encoded messaging, the training and the programming that would justify almost anything being done to people who are viewed as not human. Dehumanization is one of the pillars of caste and it's, it was reinforced in, in large and small ways. One of the ways was that there were, I, I was shocked to discover this. I didn't know that these things even existed, but there were actually son of ham sideshows and games and um, rides at many uh, amusement parks well into the middle of the 20th century. I mean, into the 1960s, apparently, as far as I could see them uh, uh, that I was able to, to find. And they were ones in which, say, uh, the goal was to throw, you know, baseballs at the head of a Black person who was there to be dehumanized for the amusement of children, which would help to, uh, you know, reinforce the inferiority, the perceived inferiority, the idea that anything could be done to the people, uh, the, the idea that one's interaction with the people was essentially one that where one could be violent and, and actually be rewarded for it. And, you know, ultimately the dehumanization of the people, which all, which creates distance that allows a person to feel that they are not doing anything wrong, that in fact they're doing the right thing by adhering to the rules and expectations and the pillars of caste.
We've just heard clips today, starting with John Bywin in a TED Talk explaining the lie that was the origin of race. Seen on radio explained the origin of racial discrimination in America and the connection to labor right from the beginning. Throughline discussed a study of race in relation to immigration. Chris Hayes on Why Is This Happening spoke with Isabel Wilkerson about immigration through the lens of caste. On Fresh Air, they also spoke with Isabel Wilkerson, who explained the concept of caste more fully. Jeffrey B. Perry discussed Theodore W. Allen, who pioneered his white skin privilege analysis way back in 1965. And Isabel Wilkerson was also interviewed on The Ezra Klein Show, where she explained the several pillars that work together to hold up a caste system. That's what everyone heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Throughline giving more detail on Franz Boas and his research that proved the absurdity of dividing peoples by race or attempting to rank cultures, as well as one more clip with Isabel Wilkerson on Fresh Air in which she explains, amongst other things, that when the Nazis were planning to build their own caste system, they came to the U.S. for inspiration and found our classification system of the races to be overly harsh. The Nazis looked at us and were like, whoa, you might have gone a bit far with that one drop rule. Just chill out a little bit. For non-members, those bonus clips are linked in the show notes and are part of the transcript for today's episode, so you can still find them if you want to make the effort. But to hear that and all of our excellent bonus content delivered seamlessly into your podcast feed, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com slash support or request a financial hardship membership because we don't make a lack of funds a barrier to hearing more information. Every request is granted, no questions asked. And now... We'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. I'm already a supporter on Patreon, but I sent an additional gift in appreciation of all your hard work lately with the transcripts and additional bonus material. I know you want to give the supporters something extra, but this bonus material is really good enough to be its own podcast. It's kind of a shame the wider audience doesn't get to hear it. I would be perfectly fine with some of these bonus episodes being released on the regular feed just to showcase the excellent job you're doing with them. Or, consider starting an additional podcast. I know that's probably too much work, but it might bring in more people and money, which you could use to hire more help, or someone else to create one of the weekly episodes, or something. Anyway, I'm just brainstorming. I just don't want your brilliant work to go unnoticed. But regardless of what you do or don't do with the bonus stuff, it's very much appreciated. Thanks. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line or wrote in their messages to be played as voicemails. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can record a message at 202-999-3991 or write me a message to j at bestofleft.com. We didn't have much time for voicemails today, so I thought I might as well uh, use only the most self-serving one. So huge thanks to Kim for all of her kind words pitching our membership content. And now we're going to quickly, finally put an end to the headline writing game that feels like I started it weeks ago. I gave three 
basic stories that we had rejoined the Paris Climate Accord, that South Carolina had a heartbeat bill, you know, anti-abortion heartbeat bill, and that Biden had declared Texas a disaster. And it's taken us so long that I assume Texas is entirely recovered by now, but we're still playing the game. And the purpose of this is to write headlines that are as misleading as they can possibly be while still being entirely true. That's the trick. And, and we do this to learn about the mechanics of misleading headlines so that you can recognize them in the wild. And so without further ado, here is our first headline. We're taking the Paris Climate Accord topic first. Foreign nations' influence over the U.S. energy sector grows. That one was from Salvatore. It's, it's a classic appeal to sovereignty is, is how the right would frame it. I think it fits neatly under what's called the flag-waving fallacy, where it's basically a, a version of nationalism, an appeal to emotion that has more to do with stoking a sense of grievance rather than looking at the actual facts. You know, a, a multilateral treaty could just as easily be framed as cooperation but to go out of your way to frame it as an infringement of your sovereignty stokes the idea of individualism, America first, etc. Sacrificing national sovereignty, Biden submits U.S. to the whims of the Paris Climate Accord. Obviously, we have a case of great minds thinking alike here. That was Dave from Olympia, who I've got to say, overachieved with this task. We're going to be hearing a lot of headlines from Dave. But he's clearly thinking along the same lines about sacrificing national sovereignty. And then our next headline is going in a new direction. Fossil fuel mouthpieces return to the Paris Climate Accord. That one is from Gladwin, and they're going in the other direction, trying to misframe or mislead from the left. Although coming from the left, it's hard to describe that as misleading. What's misleading is that the opinion of the author is so thoroughly infused into the headline. Biden administration to lead global effort to reverse climate change and save the planet. So that was another one from Dave from Olympia. And that was interesting because he also did a misleading one from the left, but in a completely different way from Gladwin to argue that Biden is leading the global effort to reverse climate change and save the planet is well, on, on one hand, ostensibly what they're supposed to be doing, but on the other, since that is definitely not what's happening, it is incredibly misleading. Okay, let's move on to the South Carolina heartbeat bill. White men continue to deny women the right to choose. That was another from Gladwin, another sort of straightforwardly partisan framing. It's just a left framing of the issue. And our next headline is just the same in reverse. South Carolina governor signs bill promoting life-affirming women's health bill. That one was from Gene. Pretty straightforward perspective from the right. But if we were to ratchet up the partisanship and emotion, then we would get something like this from Elizabeth. Crowd praises God as governor forces women to serve as incubators. And another good one that goes with that is this one from Dave from Olympia, also similarly stoking emotion, but from the other side. Activist judge prevents South Carolina from protecting unborn children. So headlines like those two are perfect examples of the 
the sort of battle lines that are drawn and and long standing and how they play on emotion but it's another good opportunity to examine how emotion plays a role in the media we consume and the headlines we read because sometimes news deserves an emotional appeal abortion is something that people are extremely passionate about and for a very good reason and so we're having a discussion about misleading headlines and appeals to emotion is one of the categories of how to mislead people. But it doesn't mean that every single appeal to emotion is misleading or wrong by definition. And and this this is one of those examples that gets into that realm of appeals to emotion that may very well be perfectly justified. But in terms of writing and artistically misleading headline on this topic i gotta say salvatore takes the cake south carolina governor defends children over feminist objection i gotta say that that one is really excellent it accepts the right-wing framing which can be legitimate to do sometimes so defending children is their framing and then giving no credence whatsoever to the other side just framing it as feminist objection which on one hand is entirely true and on the other doesn't give any context whatsoever to what they're objecting to why they're objecting what their opinion is or anything like that just take children on one side which everyone thinks is great and feminist objections excellent use of uh, completely skewed imbalance all right let's move on to our last one the texas disaster declaration Caving to demands from Texas Governor Greg Abbott, Biden's declaration will redirect federal funding to the priorities of the Republican governor. That's from Dave from Olympia, another just classic stoking of partisanship where none need to be stoked. And this Texas story is really where Dave has come to shine. So uh, let's hear another from him. Are the FEMA camps coming? Biden directs taxpayer money to house refugees in Texas. And Dave's such a nice guy that he went ahead and gave me the analysis of this one, too. He says it manages to ping both of the conflicting conspiracy theories about FEMA. First, evil FEMA is coming for you implies scary refugees are coming to Texas, while fear of spending your money on these scary refugees. And the article, of course, in the last paragraph, will clarify that the refugees are actually Texans who have lost their homes in the storm. As Texans suffer unprecedented winter storm, Biden administration plans to pick and choose who will receive help. This is another from Dave, and he explains that Governor Abbott requested aid for all 254 counties in Texas, but Biden approved aid for only 77 counties affected by the storm. And so the use of pick and choose is a really interesting manipulation tactic because it is playing on a conservative trope about Democrats wanting to use the government to pick and choose which corporations should win and which industry should win and all that. So that was, that's a deep cut, Dave, to pull out that phrase, repurpose it, reuse it in a different context to sort of dog whistle that conservative idea that makes them angry about Democrats subverting the free market, but to do it in a situation where we're trying to uh, you know, save people from a disaster, 
but the message would get across anyway. The stoking anger would get across anyway. Nicely done. And this is the last one, but I have to read it myself because the robot voice isn't doing a good enough job putting uh, a question mark emphasis on this one. So the headline is, Governor Abbott, a socialist? Governor caves to the libs, inviting the nanny state into the homes of proud Texans. And question mark. You can't get more classic than that. Write pretty much any headline you want and put a question mark on it and It's no longer a statement. It can't be questioned as a lie. We're just asking questions. Genuinely, when beyond just reading the headlines, when I'm doing research for the show, you know, we look at the titles of podcast episodes or the show notes that people have written. And if there's a question mark in their topic, Maybe I'll listen to it, but there's a really good chance that's not going to get used in the show. Anything that starts with a question that doesn't promise that an answer is coming forth is probably something you can skip over. All right, that is going to do it for uh, today's edition of the headline game. I think that we have proven this as a viable game. I'm not going to do it in an ongoing way. I don't have any new stories for you to write headlines about, but I've had fun doing it and it may come back later in in some form or another, but the real world is ripe for misleading headlines. So if you come across any really good ones, I would love to hear them. The ones that I came across most recently that there were, that were the most absurdly misleading were about the right-wing headlines saying very straightforwardly that Democrats want for Joe Biden to give up unilateral authority to launch nuclear weapons. And that is entirely true and entirely misleading because the right-wing headlines encourage you to think that Democrats don't trust Biden to have that power. But it is made perfectly clear that it is any future Republican president who those Democrats do not trust to have that unilateral power based on the most recent Republican president we had. And so that was one of the most perfect examples of being wildly misleading and yet entirely true, technically. Another game you may be interested in, though, I I had this idea because Dion coined this great phrase in the bonus episode this week when we were talking about Republican politicians who are also doctors and use their status as doctors as sort of a political cudgel. And Dion called them not doctors of science or medicine, but doctors of capitalism, which got me thinking, what would the main tenets of the Hippocratic Oath that doctors of capitalism be. So if you want to take a stab at that one, I would love to hear any thoughts on the on the Hippocratic Oath for Doctors of Capitalism. Keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991 or by emailing me to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. 
Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show, as well as joining us on our bonus episodes. Thanks to the monosyllabic transcriptionist trio, Ben, Dan, and Ken, for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, webmastering, and so on and so on, as well as co-hosting the bonus show. And thanks, of course, to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com slash support, as that is absolutely how the program survives. For details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog and likely right on the device you're using to listen. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you twice weekly. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.